This podcast discusses sensitive topics that may contain graphic depictions of violence, substance use, self-harm, explicit language, and other content that some listeners may find disturbing or triggering. Listener discretion is advised. But I also remember less pleasant things. Like when we were let outside onto a playground, a barred playground lined with barbed wire, and realized for the first time that this was a place where people couldn't leave even if they wanted to. Welcome to the Survivor Story Podcast. You are invited to open your hearts and ears to the powerful stories of others. Here, you are no longer alone. You hear your experience, your strength, your hope in the words of others. Join us on this journey as we conquer our past, live in the present, and dream for our future. Together, we choose to free our story. Welcome everybody. This is Kevin Colbert and you are here for the Survivor Story podcast. This is episode four where we showcase Sheila's story and I'm so excited for us to dive in and listen to this one. First off, I want to thank everybody out there for listening, for supporting us. The feedback and love that we have gotten has been so awesome and amazing and it just feels so good to kind of put something out there and to get a response that you all have given us. So I want to thank you for supporting and sending your love to us. Um, I watched this movie recently and I think it's still out in theaters. It's called Honey Boy and it's based on the life of Shia LaBeouf and it's amazing, amazing story. And it kind of just showcased of like, I grew up with Shia LaBeouf. I watched his show, Even Stevens. And it's amazing how much we just don't know of other people's stories and how much he was going through during that time. And it was a really interesting film because he, one, wrote the film during his kind of therapy and exposure therapy process. But during the film, he also played the role of his father, which the movie was really about him and his father's relationship. And it was such a powerful, amazing story and really showcased how telling our story can bring some deep healing and resolve to our own life. So if you haven't gone and checked it out, go check it out. Um, so I feel like a lot of people sometimes go see movies on Christmas Day. It might be a great Christmas Day movie, maybe not, um, but it is something to go see. I thought it was really well done and really powerful to see him play his own father and, in my interpretation, kind of heal through that. Um, yeah, so super cool. Today we have a really awesome episode. Um, <laughs> coming back to this, the episode, it is a kind of a full circle story. This is It's weird because I met Sheila when I was on a cruise ship maybe... Hmm, 14, no, probably like 15 or 16 years old. So this is about 15 years ago that I met Sheila and we just kind of connected there. Um, I remember feeling super like drawn to her and just like a, 
like for some reason I just like felt connected like energetically like this person seems cool seems safe I I don't know just gravitated towards her and we stayed Facebook friends rarely ever talked and you know a few months ago I heard her on a podcast and to hear her story and see how much of her reactions to experiences and survival strategies were similar to mine and I heard her on the podcast and I was like I have to have her on here because she is such an amazing speaker and has done some amazing work navigating her internal world and finding some deeper healing that I wanted her to be able to share the story for you so you can find some of that in your own life and so we reconnected um, I had her on the podcast and it's just a really powerful story and she really talks about how even small experiences in our life can really affect us in different ways because we are really like she said sponges when we're little and we take in so much information so it's it's nearly impossible for us to not be affected in certain ways and to find different roles and grooves and ways of beings that don't always serve us as adults. So let's just get right into it. Let's listen to Sheila's story. Um, Find a nice spot to sit down and listen to this. And here we go. So before I share this story, um, I just wanted to say one thing that I can't communicate how much I love, respect, and honor each of the people that I write about. And I say that not because I feel like I need to protect them, but because I recognize that they're just people doing the best that they can, just like I'm a person doing the best that I can. So with that, I'll go ahead and start my story. I grew up in two places, which has been somewhat of a recurring source of my conflict for the past decade. I was born in Omaha, Nebraska, and lived there for the first 13 years of my life. My mom and dad had a whirlwind romance, meeting and marrying, all within the span of four months. This also led to a pretty quick dismantling of the relationship, causing them to separate within the first year. During the state-ordered separation period, prior to the approval of a final divorce, my parents did their own thing. My mom went to Minnesota for a quick modeling gig, and my dad began dating someone else, a woman we'll call Stacy, who was 10 years his junior. But when it came time to get together and finalize the papers, time and distance had clouded my parents' memory, resulting in a brief reunion and me. My dad, always a stand-up man, broke off his relationship with his new girlfriend, and together he and my mom attempted to repair their marriage for the sake of me. Though I appreciate their efforts in attempting to remain together, Their frustrations with one another were palatable in the air. My mother and father grew up very different from one another. My mom, the fourth of six children, raised by an angel of a mother who had no car, no money, polio, and very little help. My mother's father was an alcoholic Korean war vet, often abusive and generally not present in his children's lives. Whether nature or nurture, Poverty, mental illness, and addiction seeped into the family tree early on. As my mom grew up, she quickly got lost in the shuffle. 
Academics in school didn't come easily to her, nor did sports or any athletics. She definitely didn't make friends easily, if at all. She didn't really have hobbies, none of which could be invested into at least, and she often described every one of her siblings leaving her out, calling her dumb, ugly, and stupid. She self-reported her early life to me as one full of sadness, envy, criticism, and anxiety. From the very start, she wasn't given the tools to overcome her obstacles. She wasn't given a voice, and even if she would have been, she wouldn't have believed herself capable or worthy enough to use it. By her early 20s, she had begun to blossom a bit, landing her first job, making some of her first friends, and experiencing her first taste of love. It seemed like she was going to be okay, that she was going to be normal after all. But by age 26, my mom's symptoms began to set in. She began to have severe, full-body panic attacks out of the blue. She became hyper-aware of everyone around her and assumed everyone had something negative to say about her. Her anxiety transitioned into fits of daily paranoia, throwing her physical and mental states into crisis. Eventually, this led to a strengthening of an always underlying depression, and life just became too much. She ended up in her first mental hospital stay and had to quit her job and went on disability. She's never worked again since. And this all occurred just a few months before she met my dad, but he didn't know that. My dad, an only child, was born in Lincoln, a town about an hour southwest of Omaha. His father was a fireman and was killed on a way to a fire when my dad was just two and a half years old. His mother, a strong, self-sufficient, eccentric woman, raised him with discipline, obedience, and performance in mind. She remarried not too long after her first husband died, but that marriage was less than picturesque. He was a mean man, a crude man, a man from which my dad learned what it meant to be a man for the first 18 years of his life. Even so, my dad had a certain softness about him. He was highly intelligent and naturally excelled and exceeded in all areas of academics. He was social, confident, unafraid to engage, and had a natural charisma about him. He was also a geek, a first chair trumpet player, a lifeguard, a choir member, a rule follower, and a rule instiller. But he never seemed to care about being anything more or less. Learning from his mother, my dad came to value hard work above all. He put himself through college, earning a degree in business, and hustled his way to success through a complicated and roundabout way. He had opinions about people who couldn't do that for themselves. He and my mom were literally the exact opposite in every way imaginable. I'm providing you with this context first because if there's one thing I've realized on my own, in my own life, it's that our parents are just people. They raised us the best way they knew how. They raised us as a, as a reflection of how they were raised according to the memories and hurts they experienced according to the coping mechanisms they developed to protect themselves and make sense of the world around them. They, just as we, have childhoods, and no one gets out of childhood unscathed. It's too precious a time in our development. We're too impressionable. Everything is a new thing, and everything informs how our mind imprints and outlays the fabric, the neural network, of our subconscious mind. It's been said that much of what we learn by the time we're seven years old has a massive impact on how we train our mind to respond to the world, keep us safe, and receive love well into adulthood. It's our most basic and elementary brain, but also the one dictating our survival and much of our personality development. So, as I transition into discussing some of my own experiences, 
I do so with an awareness that I am not the only person in my story. My pain is not the only pain in my story. As a young child, I was expressive, sensitive, imaginative, intelligent, and defiant. I was highly attached to my mother, begging to sleep in her bed most nights and clinging to her in public. I was somewhat afraid of my father, though I loved him and thought him to be the fun one. The man often worked 70 plus hours a week and had a quick temper, and my mom often left most of the days disciplining up to him. The type of discipline that was questionably okay in the 90s, but wouldn't fly by today's standards. My parents were never able to have more children, so most of my days were spent entertaining myself, playing with the many animals we had at the house, reading, coloring, creating elaborate make-believe games, you know, normal kid stuff. Early school was normal for me. I actually just came across some old report cards and saw that the grades were good, the behavior marks satisfactory as well. Though many of my teachers pointed out my need to control and manipulate my surroundings to feel at ease. I can also recall always being keenly aware of how to feel out a room. I just innately knew where there was conflict and discomfort. I could easily pick up when something felt off, and I remember making it my personal responsibility to dissolve whatever I was feeling, not sure if it was to protect others or if to protect myself. Things in my life begin to shift by the time I was seven or eight years old. It's where everything starts to get fuzzy. It's where I always have to be careful in retelling my story because I feel somewhat detached from it all. It feels unreal, like it never happened. And because of that, my mind likes to tell me that it's unimportant, that it didn't affect me, and that there's no value in discussing it. This is a survivor story podcast. And in frank honesty, I feel like I didn't survive anything. But that's what our minds do to us. Trivialize our stories so that we never speak them, so that we don't have to process through the pain and keep pushing it down saying it's so much less significant than what someone else went through. Tell us to suck it up and move on with it. But that's also why it's so important to silence those thoughts, if only for an hour, and share what happened to us from our perspective, so we can begin to heal from the ways that affected us and only the ways we can understand. Anyway, my parents' relationship had effectively dissolved by the time I was about seven and a half years old. They had a blowout in the lawn, I remember. There was a gardening tool involved, maybe a chainsaw, actually. It was intense. No one got hurt, but then they got a divorce. My mom moved out into a house my dad bought for her because she would not be able to afford anything but public housing on her disability income, and my dad was not about to have his only daughter grow up like that. At the beginning, they shared custody. I don't remember much about this time. I feel like it wasn't that stressful. I don't remember feeling traumatized by the fact they were splitting up. But my mom was a wreck. She was sick. Her mind was fragmented. She was tired. She was sad. She was terrified. She was paranoid. She could barely eat. Her skin was pale. Her eyes seemed hollow. Her symptoms from 10 years ago resurfaced with a vengeance. She began to ask questions about my dad. What's he doing? Where'd he go? Who is he with? Who's that? white car. And over at my dad's house, honestly, it was just comical. Here's a man who had no idea how to truly care for a little girl. God, he meant well, and my heart just swells thinking about that time and how uncertain and scared he must have been too. Having him try to put my hair in a ponytail for the first time was an ordeal. There were many nights of Chef Boyardee. But somewhere along the way through all of this, I'm told I started acting out more. 
The expressive, sensitive, creative kid had turned stubborn, explosive, and more aggressive than ever before. Whether it was my mom who couldn't control me, or the fact that she couldn't control herself, our relationship plummeted almost immediately. At the same time, my dad just so happened to run into his previous girlfriend Stacy's brother at the bank. He asked about her, asked if she was still single, and if, she could, if he could have her contact information. She was. They went on a date, then another, then another, then she moved into our house, then they got engaged and married, and this was all in about a year after the divorce. Now, Stacy was 10 years younger than my dad, and 10 years before, when they were dating, she was 18 and he was 28, she fell hard, super hard. She loved him tremendously, and he left her because he got his separated wife pregnant. Ouch, that's some rejection. I get it. But whether she realized it or not, I represented that. Me being conceived triggered the demise of her blossoming relationship, and I could feel that when she re-entered my life. Stacy and I did not get along. It was more than an evil stepmom dynamic. She tried her best, but I was a lot, and frankly, she didn't want me. She wanted to pick up where she had left off with my dad. I was in the way. At my mom's, things were getting worse. One night, New Year's Eve 1999, it all came to a T. I don't know what I was doing. She would tell you, lashing out violently and or kicking her, hitting her. I don't remember. And either way, she couldn't handle it anymore. She couldn't handle me anymore. She couldn't handle any of it anymore. She got me out of the bath, packed up my bag, called her mom, and together they drove me to a mental institution. They didn't consult my dad. In their minds, they didn't want to bother him at his New Year's Eve party. I had no idea where my mom was taking me. I had calmed down by now, and I remember asking, What's going on? It's dark. It's cold. I want to go home. Where are we going? I'll be good now. Let's just go home. We entered a building and walked up to a reception desk. My mom talked in hushed, frantic speech and made me go sit somewhere else to play. I felt that something wasn't right. I remember going back and talking to a series of people, doctors mostly. I remember being ushered into various rooms and having various tests administered to me. I sat across from a man in a desk while he held cards in front of me, asking what I saw or how I felt. I still didn't know what was going on. I didn't know how much time had passed. Eventually, I didn't know where my mother was either. When I got done with the test and the talks and the assessments, I still couldn't find her. But I still thought I'd be going home. But I didn't get to go home. I got taken away from her and quickly realized I had to stay there. I cried out for her because I didn't want to be left alone. But I saw her turn and walk away and out the door. This is where everything gets blurrier. Whether from the medication I began receiving while I was in there, things like Zoloft and Risperidol, among others, some of which today are not even legally administered in patients under 18 due to their adverse psychological effects, or perhaps it was the trauma-induced memories. Either way, I kind of became like a zombie. Anyway, I remember walking through the sterile halls of that place. Being led by an aggressive nurse, who very well could have been a sweet lady, but to my eight-year-old self was the enemy. She took me to a room and showed me a bed to get into. 
The room had a tiny window near the ceiling and a starchy pink, a starchy pink blanket. I saw a book on a shelf and recognized it from my second grade classroom, Chicka Chicka Boom Boom, and I asked her if I could read it. She said no, lights out, and slammed down the switch. I was already scared of the dark, but I can't remember a more terrifying night. Over the next few days while I was there, my mind has hung on to a series of memories. It's not that these are the most poignant necessarily, but these are the ones that have remained. These are the ones I see when I close my eyes, and if I let myself go there and remember the pain, they are the ones that flash by. They are the ones that still cause my throat to tighten and my chest to heave. So these are the ones I have to share with you now so I can continue to release them. After the intake day, the next day at the institution, I remember going on a tour of the place. I remember walking by a gymnasium where people were playing basketball. I remember passing a long line of patients queued up in a hallway, slowly shuffling their way to a pharmacy window with, a, with little white Dixie cups in their hands, waiting to get their daily pharmaceutical cocktail. I remember, the, I remember them having to open their mouths while nurses shoved their hands into their throats, making sure they actually swallowed their pills. I remember walking by a padded room, asking what that was, asking if I could go play in there because I saw a ball. And I remember being told that's where people go when they need a timeout. I remember going to school and sitting in a desk too large for me in a room with teenagers staring at a chalkboard full of content that I could never understand. I was too young. Sometimes I remember things being fun, like when we went to lunch and I learned that I was the only child in the whole wing, so I would get to eat with the big kids, the teenagers. I remember them letting me in to their group and talking to me and telling me that I looked like someone famous from some movie that I've never seen. I felt so cool. One of the girls, maybe about 15 years old, asked me what I was in for, and I said, I don't know. Naturally, I asked her what she was in for, too. She said, suicide. That was the first time I had ever heard that word, but it definitely would never leave my mind again. I remember a day when we all got up early and did an exercise VHS tape with mats in a common area, and I remember taking the most lovely nap of my whole life. We all laid down on those mats and we were given more pink blankets while a sweet, calm lady spoke over us and ushered us into relaxation, perhaps my earliest form of meditation now that I think about it. But I also remember less pleasant things. Like when we were let outside onto a playground, a barred playground lined with barbed wire, and realized for the first time that this was a place where people couldn't leave even if they wanted to. Or when I witnessed a girl being carried past me in a straight jacket, screaming and thrashing, only to realize it was my 15-year-old friend from earlier. I also recall picking up some weird habits myself, like anxiously picking at my skin or having to deal with new compulsions that I had never experienced before in my mind. Everything felt altered. When my family was finally able to get me out, things were not the same. I was withdrawn, yet acting out, and now dealing with even higher levels of fear, anxiety, and true paranoia. I had been put on a regular dose of medication, medication that ultimately robbed me of my present moment and put me into a fog. The disassociative tendencies noted by the intake counselors and doctors upon my arrival to the institution, I've since seen and read the papers, were rapidly becoming my number one defense mechanism. 
By not feeling, not remembering, not discussing, I think I was trying to feel normal. Only it wasn't normal anymore. Nothing was the same. When I returned from the hospital, everyone just told me to say I was on vacation. Don't talk about it, Sheila. Especially at school. So I didn't. For years and years. But in school, I was no longer listening to my teachers. Wasn't completing my assignments. Struggling to have friendships. Got asked not to return to my Catholic school after completing the fourth grade. I was worrying everyone around me. A repetitive cycle of who am I, what's going on, am I crazy, began to plague my mind every day. I couldn't get a grasp. I do remember knowing that every time I walked by the dishwasher in the kitchen and saw the knives, I noticed them now. I really noticed them. I had learned what suicide was by this point. And I thought about that girl often. Sometimes I got so stressed out, I'd wonder what kind of reaction I'd get if I just opened the door on the highway and jumped out of the moving car. I think I threatened that a few times. I'd used, I used to hope I'd break a bone or sprain an ankle, sometimes self-inflicting, just so I could have a reason to be noticed or cared for. Clearly, I had become desperate for something. I just don't know what. Before the end of the year, I ended up in the mental institution again. But this time, I have zero memory of it. I don't know if it was recommended by a counselor or psychiatrist, or if it was because my parents were concerned, or if I requested to go back. I don't know how long the stay was, and I have no idea what happened while I was there. It's frustrating because I should have never been admitted in the first place. My behavior was in line with that of a child coping with a divorce, unstable family unit, and experiencing mild child depression. It should not have elicited a trip to an extended inpatient stay at an adult psychiatric hospital. It should not have elicited intensive medication. My mother's story should not have been the only one taken into consideration upon admittance, but she was just doing the best she could. She did what she knew, what had worked for her, and the doctors were just doing their jobs. Unfortunately, this time, the system failed a little girl. Once the second release happened, life settled down mainly because I zoned out. For the next three or so years, I only have few memories. Everything is vague, like an alter reality. I remember random things here and there, but not things I should, like important life events, birthdays, moves, or vacations. I was there, but I wasn't there. I was existing, but I wasn't thriving. And all the while, my mind was going wild with unexpressed and repressed emotion, that couldn't be brought to the surface and fully realized due to, honestly, the stupefying effect of the medication I was on at that early of an age. So I think I learned how to live with it, accept it as normal, and just carry on silently. Around age 11, after being forced to switch schools, my dad, Stacy, my dad and Stacy had full custody of me, and I remember a powerful, potentially life-altering conversation I had with my mother. She and I were standing around the table of one of the various departments she now lived in. She lost the house my dad bought her, and she was sorting her pills for the next week. She said something to the effect of, you know, you're going to have to take pills like this, like me, for the rest of your life. She seemed to say it to me as an aside, almost as a bonding thing, but every ounce of my body revolted internally. You could say in that moment, my stubborn defiance saved me. From that point, I began to slowly take myself off of my medication. How I had the foresight to do that, I don't know. 
I seemed to understand well enough I couldn't go off everything all at once, but I didn't trust that my mom and doctors would listen to me and help me get off safely, so I just started reducing it on my own. And I think after a while after of that, I told Stacy, and she got the doctor involved and helped me get all the way off. I remember my mom being terrified that I was going to go insane, like she had in the past whenever she had tried to get off of her medications. But I didn't. I was fine. My memory returned. I began to feel emotion again. I was laughing real laughs again. I was staring at knives less. I had a new group of friends, even a first boyfriend. The dark memory of the hospital and all that happened moved so far down into my psyche, I didn't discuss it with another person again until I was in my late teens. Late childhood and early adolescence for me was comparatively normal, considering. My relationship with my mom was severely damaged, not because I held her responsible necessarily, but because her sickness triggered the sickness in me, if that makes sense. I would feed off of her energy and had no ability to control my temper around her. Jekyll and Hyde. With her, I couldn't be the child. I had to be the parent. Everything was stressful. Everything was an ordeal. I had to explain things to her, console her, comfort her, reassure her, make sure not to make her cry, hold her if she was crying. But all that took a toll. So I began to stress about and wanted to avoid the time I was supposed to spend at her place. And it broke her heart. Mine too. It wasn't her fault. I knew that. I know it even now. She didn't know how to cope. She was suffering herself. Everything made me feel enormous guilt and shame. I wished I could be better for her, but I didn't know how to control myself. So in that time, my dad became my savior. At his house, mental illness wasn't the cornerstone. Other than the outbursts Stacy and I routinely had with one another, I was pretty much able to do whatever I wanted. He continued to work a lot, and she generally didn't enjoy my company, so we all stayed on our own individual levels of the house and just did our own thing. I developed a sharp independence. Though I fought my dad's discipline, I loved him with every ounce of my being. In my mind, I had built him up as my rescuer, my savior. He was the only constant, the only one who made me feel not crazy, and even when I made him angry, I knew he was never judging me. When I was 13, my dad had to move Stacy and I out of state for his work. We ended up in Wisconsin and then eventually Illinois. I was in eighth grade and just absolutely livid. In my mind, I was just getting back to normal. I had developed a friendship with a girl who had become my everything at the time, and leaving her felt like I was dying, truly. I gave my poor dad the silent treatment for eight entire months. In Wisconsin, I entered public school for the first time. This is where all my years of innate intuition, protective disassociative tendencies, and my ability to stuff down my feelings allowed me to get my first taste of what would become my predominant personality characteristic for the next decade and a half of my life. I learned how to be a chameleon. In these new states, no one knew who I was. No preconceived notions, no reminders, just a clean slate. Without even thinking about it, it became second nature for me to read a room and adopt, read a room and adopt, read a room and adopt, over and over again, all the way into high school, read a room and adopt. It wasn't that I was chasing what I thought was popular necessarily, or even what would get me liked. 
It was more of me unconsciously giving up my power of personal choice and allowing other people to feel me out, make an opinion about me, learn it, and then perform it. I was always good at obedience, always a performer at heart. I didn't have an identity. I didn't know who I was. My tiny life at that time had been so fragmented. I became the perfect candidate to just give in to whatever came my way. By the time I was 15, I saw myself as what I now describe as a passive observer of my life. I wasn't making choices necessarily. I was just half-heartedly agreeing to anything and everything I encountered. I became a master harmonizer, a compromiser, and a keeper of the peace. I hated conflict and made myself permeable enough, adaptable enough, so that I never had to experience it. In high school, I found myself with many friends and was blessed to have a few really, really good friends that are still in my life today. I was outgoing, funny, confident, and compassionate. I easily excelled academically, and I partied all the time. To this day, I consider myself blessed that my partying never turned into my vice because it easily could have. I had boyfriends, I had a first love, and many lessons that went along with that, all the normal stuff. By the time I started to think about college, I'd been away from Nebraska, my mom, and all the triggers that could quickly take me back to my past for over five years. When I was in Illinois, life was different. The people were different. The lifestyles were different. I was different. I lived in a normal middle-class house and could go to the mall when I wanted and get what I wanted because I had a job. And my dad provided me with food and help with things like a cell phone bill. I found myself embarrassed or somehow ashamed of my privilege even though it was so far from what some of my friends had been blessed with, I just knew a different way of life existed. Whenever I was forced to think about the way my mom was living in Nebraska, shitty Section 8 apartment after shitty Section 8 apartment, constant risk of safety and homelessness, gang violence, food stamps and government aid for everything, no money for new clothes, barely enough for food and gas, I felt constant, self-inflicted, inconsolable guilt. I felt so much responsibility for her, yet so detached at the same time. She missed her daughter, missed all the growing up I was doing 446 miles away from her, and I could feel that all of the time. As I said, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how I belonged. I didn't know who or what or where to pledge my allegiance to, where to connect. A theme in my life had emerged. Everything always felt just a little bit off, a little unclear, a little uncertain, a little like I was treading water in an endless ocean, not drowning, but not going anywhere either. I just couldn't land on a story to help me make sense of my life and what I wanted out of it. It was a constant battle in my mind, one that I never really let anyone in on. Eventually, I decided to return to my home state for college. For time's sake, I'll glaze over the details of this time in my life, but it can be best described as one of radical personal transformation. Over and over again, it was a time when the chameleon in me hit an all-time high and I tried on all sorts of personalities from insane party girl to worship leader at a campus ministry to introverted bookworm and many in between. It was more than experimentation. It was a silenced girl desperately trying to figure out what where the fuck she fit into a world so she could just commit to something, anything, and hopefully live out a calm and normal life. 
I was looking for a sense of home, solid ground to land on. I got out of college in four years with a 4.0 GPA, liberal arts degree, and no idea what I was going to do. Right away, it seemed like I got a degree in the wrong thing, communication studies, but I had to pick something and I was so indecisive all throughout, this is what I ended up with. Early in my college career, I thought maybe I wanted to be a teacher, and then I thought I actually wanted to be a counselor. But I kept hearing the voices of years past in my head reminding me that I wasn't qualified because I had once been a crazy person. No one could ever trust me. They'd find out, disbar me, so to speak. I lived with a constant residual fear that one day I was going to snap back and wake up in that mental anguish again, just like my mom had predicted. So by 2013, when I was 22, I was ready to hit the ground running and start building a life doing something, anything really. But then my dad suffered a massive, completely unexpected and fatal heart attack. He was 52. Rather than grieving, I spent the next 12 months or so doing what my, what my mind did best, disassociating and staying busy. I became super task-oriented, priding myself in being able to stand in for Stacy and help her through the shock of having her beloved ripped away from her once again. But all the while, slowly, painfully, my dad slipped into the back of my mind where other painful memories went to metaphorically die or live or just remain until they found the perfect time to rear their ugly heads. It wasn't that I was moving on or accepting or even denying necessarily. I wasn't even angry. I was nothing. He began to feel like he wasn't real, that none of it was ever real. Day by day went by and I could no longer remember what his voice sounded like. I closed my eyes and I couldn't make out his face anymore. I wondered what it would be like to touch his skin again. Weird stuff, but real stuff, stuff that was in stark comparison to my reality. I found myself saying over and over, what in the actual fuck? Did I have a dad? Like, was this real? He existed and then he died? What? What does that even mean? I was of a fully sound mind and understood the reality, but my brain so desperately tried to drag me into this surreal state of processing and overthinking. I began to do that thing again where passive observance as opposed to active participation became my primary mode for living life. I watched silently without much protest as choices were made for me, as my dad's belongings were dealt with, as his estate was settled, his money distributed, his will decided for him, as the last little bits of his existence were filed away into things we don't talk about anymore. I didn't feel him. He didn't visit me in my dreams. I didn't see signs. He just left. By the end of the first year after his death, I was ready for a change. I could feel myself acting different, just walking around, this time an unmedicated zombie, floating from one day to another. I looked fine on the outside. I was working, going out, dating, smiling, all that. No crying fits for me, no deep depression, no slowing down. I may have even looked like I was an overcomer, a, sur a survivor, someone who decided to take the high road and not victimize herself, not play into that story. Oh, Sheila, you're so strong. I heard it over and over and over again. 
Nope, no pity, please. No support required. I'm good. I got this. It's all good. Everything has always been good, damn it. Grief looks different for everyone, and I'm honestly not even sure that I was actually grieving him. How could I grieve someone my mind told me never existed? I think I was grieving what he represented to and for me. He was my way of checking in to make sure I was doing okay, that I was going to keep being okay, that I wasn't going to go crazy. He was my promise for safety. As I said, he was my rescuer. And when, I, and when he left, I just grew slowly more and more apathetic and listless. Without him as an option, I think much of me retreated back to that eight-year-old girl for a little while. I didn't know where to go or really what to do, and now I didn't even know who I belonged to. I decided I needed to go back to the last place I felt any semblance of okayness. I went back to Illinois and moved in with my best friend and her boyfriend, who then became her fiancé, who then became her husband. I meant to leave after a year. I meant to go to grad school or something. I even got accepted. I meant to get my shit sorted out. But I was tired. I just couldn't anymore. I don't even know what it was that I couldn't do, but I just couldn't. And I fell into monotony and mundanity. I was surrounded by new friends and old friends, yes, but even more isolated here than I was in Nebraska. One day a friend asked me, Sheila, when do you think you'll be happy again? And I didn't know how to answer her because I didn't know if I had ever experienced what real happiness felt like or looked like. I didn't know how to embody that. It was always something attached to what I, something I did or how someone viewed me. I guess I always thought about my level of hap- happiness in relation to how crazy and out of control I was feeling or not feeling on that particular day. I didn't know how to separate the two. I tell you this as I bring my story to a close because I want you to know I'm still sitting in Illinois. I'm still working through all of this. The grass is not greener on the other side. And it's true, they say, it's only greener where you water it. A new home will not fix something that can't be fixed. But throughout the past five years of living here, I inadvertently and accidentally began the process of breaking open the story of my life that I had locked away. I think it began one day late in 2014, right after I had moved here, when I decided at work to angrily type out an annoyance I was having at a particular task I was supposed to be doing for a job that I wasn't fully enjoying. But once I started writing one thing, I couldn't stop. Nearly 400 pages later, I've used this private rant journal to start shifting the noise in my head to noise on paper so I could see it feel it, disempower it, and begin piecing together the patterns and memories that I left scattered behind me for 20 years. Through this, I realized just how much pain was inside me. I realized that if I just quieted myself for one second, I could hear the endless torrents of rage, fear, sadness, rejection, and so many other emotions wailing in the hollows of my mind. I realized how much everything that had happened to me as a child had indeed affected me, maybe not in a big way, Maybe not in the way some trauma does, but in subtle, sneaky ways. In ways that have altered my sense of the world and what it means to be safe, to have a home, to feel okay, to accept, and to give love, to commit. It's all connected. From this spontaneous journey of self-awareness and healing, 
I've come to understand how valuable it is to extract the lessons and yes, even the gifts that pain bring us. It's helped me realize it's helped me release people who have hurt me and do my best to extend radical empathy to them. Because honestly, we can't undo history. We may never be able to right a wrong we did to someone or them to us, but we get to choose what power that narrative has over our life. That's what's been the most freeing for me as I walk this journey. Every day I'm learning how to choose again, choose differently, choose to forgive, choose to let go, to acknowledge the person and everyone, to honor myself, think for myself, speak up for myself, choose to rewrite and rewire how my brain hangs on to these memories so I can have a better chance at a more fulfilled, free, and happy life. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you for listening to Sheila's story. Before we move on to the Q&A, I just want to say, if you want to support us, please send us love by rating this podcast and subscribing to us. Um, when you subscribe, it just automatically downloads the episode so that it can be there for you. And it really helps just push this podcast forward so more and more people can hear these inspiring stories that can help facilitate some deeper healing in their lives. Um, we love to hear from you on Instagram and Facebook at The Survivor Story. There we have an active community where we kind of bring little clips from these different episodes. We have a little bit more conversation about how we can take some of what we're hearing and apply it into our own lives. So follow us on that. Join us on that. Um, we also are releasing journal articles and have a bunch of information on our website at the survivorstorypodcast.com. There, there is so much to kind of dive into that um, I don't even know where to begin. But if you're looking for some things to boost you in your mental, emotional well-being, we have journal articles. We have more on every episode. We have books that our guests recommend. Definitely go check it out. Um, you won't regret it. And let's just move right into the Q&A with Sheila. Here we go. Well, thank you very much for sharing your story. Um, You're welcome. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to say it out loud. It's always yeah. nice. Yeah, I um, you know, originally heard you on another podcast sharing your story. And there are so many parts to it that at least like the the perspectives and the experiences that I related to mm -hmm. part of the process of, I guess, healing and forgiving that I related to as well. Um, one of the things I noticed was that when you went to tell your story, you immediately kind of gave a little bit of a background of your um, parents and kind of, you know, what they were brought into the world with and what they were taught and what they learned. And I was curious on, it sounds like that, that part, like understanding that part has been a part of like, almost like the way you've come to some forgiveness. And I wonder like, how, have you always been able to comprehend like, oh, like my parents went through this. So this is kind of how it was or how they were, or is it something that came on later in life? I think that. I've always had this ability to see multiple perspectives mm. at once. 
Hmm. And that's been that way ever since I was a child. Um, I've just always been able to kind of, as I alluded to in the story, feel out the tension and the emotion and um, the cause and effect of things, both in a literal standpoint, but also in more of an intuitive way. So Hmm. when I started to look at what happened to me and when I decided that I wasn't going to be the victim of my story, I think that I wanted to build a support case for that. So I think a little bit is that, yes, I always had an awareness of the different types of backgrounds that my parents grew up in. My mom's was more verbal and explicit because she would tell me about it. My dad's was more of me picking it up on my own. But collectively, understanding that as I got older and as I processed through adolescence and then into college and just life and watching life happen around me and living more life myself, it made me realize that um, there's a whole bunch of things that happened before I was even born that affected me after I was born. And that makes me also think of, you know, it seems like there's been a lot of forgiveness around that. Correct me if I'm wrong. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And kind of my process of learning about forgiveness has been just the same as like kind of like the onion where it comes and then it goes and also separating that I can still be in a place of forgiveness and still rightfully have my anger Mm -hmm. Um, and wondering how is the process of forgiveness looked for you? Has it been like these like single big moments or has it been a bunch of little moments throughout, you know, I think you talked about last five years of Mm. a lot of work. So forgiveness is something that I really haven't worked on that much, which sounds Mm. interesting because I've arrived at a place where I have chosen to, I have chosen to forgive. But for me, I think that my lack of working on forgiveness is actually layered in something deeper, which is my sense of worth, almost of a point of telling myself for much of my life, there's nothing that needs to be forgiven. Nothing Mm -hmm. happens. Like, it's fine. Um, So when I started to realize how hurt I was, I did go back to my mom And we had some conversations and I knew that I could never expect her to say, I'm so sorry. I can't believe I did that to you. I didn't expect her to um, become accountable for her actions. So I didn't make that a requirement in my ability to forgive her. Because Mm -hmm. a lot of times I don't think that she realized that she was doing anything wrong. And I know that's like hard to hear because sometimes people are like, well, common sense, don't do that to your kid. But think about what was going through her mind, you know? So all I could be responsible for in terms of going through forgiveness is looking at my own mind, picking apart the pieces of the story that were affecting me the most, bringing it to the attention, if there was attention to be brought forward to like to somebody um and speaking up but I'll reiterate I didn't have expectations it didn't change the path um that had been walked already there was one conversation where we had a difficult time discussing this at a park bench 
And I surprised myself in saying, I don't know why you just can't say sorry. Um, and she did after. But I just think it's a constant process of you're never going to arrive at true forgiveness. And perhaps others would, would disagree with me. But I just think it's a choice um, to release others from that pain so you can release yourself from it too. I feel like I definitely agree with you that it's not this, it's that it is a very much a process. Um, mm -hmm. And it's relieving to hear that, you know, yeah. it almost uh, takes away any uh, criticism we might have towards ourselves, you know, that yeah. we like haven't arrived to this point. What's wrong? I also heard you saying, you know, especially when you were coming out of the hospital of being told a mes message of don't talk about it, Sheila. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how has that message carry on with your life? And now here you are, you know, talking all about it. <laughs> um, and I was curious on when did that shift happen? And how did you start talking about these things? I don't really know that I made a um, conscious decision to begin talking about it. It just almost became a thing where it's like you can only build up for so long before it just kind of spills out. So early in college, I didn't talk about this, but I had gone through this interesting exploration of what God meant to me. And it's the first time that I received kind of a language to be able to process through um, like spirituality and just like understanding how thoughts affect your um, emotion and emotion in your body. And just, I had, I had gotten a new language for, um, understanding that when bad things happen to you, it's not your fault. And that there are, uh, there's grace to explore that safely. And there's higher powers that you can give up that burden to. So, I guess I just started talking more about some of my my pain in those circles, like little church groups or just um, little things like that. And that's not as much of my my part of my life anymore, but it served a monumental step in my early 20s to just get me talking even a little bit because I felt like these people are safe. They're not going to judge mm -hmm. me. How could they? They say they're like these godly people. So therefore, I don't have to be anything special. So you have to feel safe in order to start talking, I think. Um, and the, the alternative is that it just boils over um, and it comes out in fits of rage or silent sadness. It's going to move out of your body in one way or another. Um, so accepting that and embracing that and choosing to partially be uh, active and how that happens was big for me. And then going back to your first part of that question, I think that um, the don't talk about it, Sheila, kind of occurred because it was just like a lot. It was just messy and um, my family kind of didn't give a place to talk about heightened emotion, whether that's sadness or extreme mm -hmm. happiness or extreme sadness. It was like, just kind of like chill, <laughs> just like be, yeah. just equal or equal or uh, I cannot say the word equal librium. 
So I just learned to be quiet. And I learned that uh, I learned quickly when I was too much and I learned when I was not enough. And that became a contradiction that carries with me still to this day. Hmm. I also heard of you talking about having to be a parent within your households and in your childhood. And I was curious on what are the effects that you now being as an adult of kind of being a childhood parent or being an adult child, how has the that affected you as an adult? So this is really easy for me to answer because I'm realizing it now more than ever, but I don't know how to play. Um, <laughs> I'm uncomfortable with silliness. I, in you know high school, in early adulthood, put on this facade of like cynicism, dry humor. Like that's, that's my go-to. Like a blissful smile is like too vulnerable. And nobody told me that. Nobody told me that it was like weak to laugh or don't play. It's just, I didn't have time for that shit. I was dealing mm. with so much. Um, yeah. And yeah, so I think that's been the biggest thing is that whenever I try to play now in anything, even like dance or like move my body, things that I love, I just feel like a thousand eyes are on me and I just like feel crippled and then I'm hyper aware of people, you know, being aware that I'm not having fun. Or Sheila, why can't you take a joke? Or Sheila, why aren't you laughing? Sheila, why are you so serious? You're the mom of the group. All things said in, in love and kindness, but mm-hmm. daggers to my heart because I want to play and I want to be free and I want to be expressive and I want to be creative and I want to play music and I want to do all of these things, but I don't know how. <laughs> Mm-hmm. other than through a process of letting go. So do you have any, like, do you practice playing? Mm-hmm. For me, I've had to start intentionally playing or I just won't. <laughs> yeah, no, you're totally right. And um, the yeah. few times that I have learned how to build this in, and I have a friend, actually the girl who originally interviewed me on her podcast, she's been a great mm-hmm. example of demonstrating how to play. So hmm. I've done things like where I will put on weird music and like interpretive dance in my room. But of course I do it with the lights off and the door locked and keep my boyfriend out and the cat even can't be in there because I feel so silly. But, you know, within five minutes of doing that, like I'm just like either laughing or crying or on the floor and I just like, I feel free and it feels so good. Mm. Um, And writing has been a huge way that I, I play. I've accepted within the last couple months that I'm a poet and I've never thought that because of what I said earlier. That's too much, you know, too sensitive. Knock it off. (laughs) Chill out. (laughs) Too dramatic. Um, And then also, as I have just been able to process through some of my emotions, the grip that anxiety has plagued me with that I didn't really discuss in the the story. the fear like that I would feel in doing anything new is starting to go away a little bit. And I'm starting to grow in my self-confidence and I'm starting to care what people think about me a little bit less. And because of that, I'm learning how to try new things, which is a form of play for me as well. I want to touch in on like picking up on every little nuance, being a chameleon. Mm-hmm. That is one one place that's been difficult to play because I just like pick up on the environments and so soaked up in environments. 
And I wonder how have you been able to take steps or to like learn how to live, even though you're picking up all these environmental messages? Um, I find that if I can have a buddy, like just one person to do something new with me, um, it kind of lessens my attention to the external environment and it puts it more on a like dyadic type relationship, you know, one-to-one. Um, mm. So that's been really helpful. And I also have just realized that if you want to change, it's not going to be easy always. So um, mm. putting myself in situations where it's safe to try new things and then just like freaking doing it and knowing that I'm going to be okay, keeping my ego yeah. in check, telling little girl Sheila, which is something I'm doing lately is some inner child work of, hey, girl, it's okay that you're scared right now. Like, I get it. You're just trying to keep me safe. But here's what's up. This is what we're going to do today. Like, fear's not going to drive today. I'm going to drive today. And this is something that I would just roll my eyes at even six months ago. I still feel uncomfortable saying this because it seems so just ridiculous, but it's not ridiculous. It's just that vulnerability resistance that I'm coming up, you know, with. And it it means Mm -hmm. that I'm shedding these layers and I'm letting people finally into a whole version of myself instead of a compartmentalized version of myself. That's my end game here. I don't want to be one thing to one person, one thing to another person. I want to be Sheila all the time, fully expressed, regardless of the person I'm around and regardless of the situation I'm in. It makes me think of the also the passive observance versus the active participation. Mm-hmm. And I like to think that happens on like a macro level where there's these big times in my life where I have been much more of a passive observer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then times where I'm an active pers- per- would you say active yep. participant? Okay. That's a hard word. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I also think it happens like within my like just day to day, right? Where there, I go through these phases of being an observer versus active participating. Mm-hmm. And I want to know what kind of practices or what has helped you become more of an active participant in your life. Well, that's probably the number one thing that I am working on right now. So I don't have a yeah. ton of experience, but what I what I am doing is um, simple things like making decisions. Where do you want to go to eat? Don't say I don't care. Just make a choice. Hmm. Um, asking for help instead of just getting frustrated and assuming that I need to do it all because I always do it because that's just my role is to do everything for everyone. You know, that those are old stories I would tell myself. So when I catch those stories, when I catch myself being passive, when I feel in my body that something is going on around me that I don't like or that I don't want to be a part of or that I don't want to listen to, instead of just sitting there and taking it and just you know, ignoring it, I just get up and leave. Like my time is valuable. Life is precious. And I'm really getting better at understanding where I want to spend my time and who I want to spend it with. So I guess the work that I'm doing 
in that regard right now has been mostly interpersonal. And I think I need to start there before I can start making some of the other changes in my life, which could be a job or a move or something like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I also uh, related to you saying, I don't know what happiness, if I ever felt real happiness in my life. And um, I wonder with eyes now, what does happiness look like to you today? What does it seem like? Uh, what are even just a couple things that does make you happy? I think that when I boil down what happiness means, I have to first get to some of the muck that kind of probably made me feel like I was not able to be happy because as I had said, it was related to how crazy and in control or out of control are you feeling today, Sheila? That will be how happy you are. So for me, I've realized that I feel happiest when I feel safe and when I feel like I can express myself freely, when I can lay my head down figuratively and not have to be something for somebody. Um, not have to carry weight of things that I don't need to carry. And probably most specifically, um, I feel happiest when people are not telling me who I am, how I am, how I should be, how I was. When people give me the space to like, just be without those limitations on being too much or too, too little, that's when I feel happiest. That could be during an activity, that could be in a relationship, doesn't matter. That's the thing. Well, thank you for shedding light on that. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, the first time I ever shared yeah. that part. Um, I hmm. never actually realized I felt that way until I wrote the story for this. So it was illuminating for me as well. Hmm. Beautiful. Yeah. We're going to switch gears uh, I feel like I could just ask you questions all day, <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to ask you the three questions we ask every okay. guest. Um, and the first question is, who are you grateful for? And that could be a friend. It could be a group of people and you don't even have to list their name, but you could just say what type of relationship it was and what they given you, offered you, helped you with, whatever. I have an aunt that came into my life for a brief time, and I lived with her when my dad and Stacy were in a transition between Nebraska and Illinois. It was over summer, so I had to live with her for a while. And my dad deposited me there, a mess, a wreck, angry. And that woman loved me and hugged me like I had never been loved or hugged before. I can feel her hug right now just speaking this to you. It was without obligation, judgment. Um, it was just beautiful. And I owe so much of my um, sanity and peace to her. That's so sweet. Yeah. So the second question uh, what is a favorite book you would recommend? could be either fiction, nonfiction, whatever um, comes to mind. I had a feeling I was going to be asked this. Um, 
Did you know that you came prepared, huh? <laughs> well, I just listened to so many podcasts, and this is like the favorite. Yeah. Okay, so um, no, I don't have a favorite, but when I really cracked into some personal growth and development uh, work at the very beginning of 2018, I came across Brene Brown's "The Gift, uh, The Gifts of Imperfection." That was super great. Um, and then I also had my spirituality and religious beliefs questioned once again through the series of Conversations with God by Neil Donald Walsh. Hmm. And honestly, I just listen to podcasts all the time. And if you'd let me, I can tell you like two that I'm loving right now. Yeah. Uh, one of them right. is called Don't Keep Your Day Job. And it's by somebody that I can't think of right now, even though I listen to it every day. Cool. We'll look it up. <laughs> and then I also really love uh, Melissa Ambersini's podcast. Melissa I just love the guest that, yeah, Melissa Ambersini. Cool. And it's called The Melissa Ambersini Show. And I just love the guest that both of these women have on their podcast from all sorts of different backgrounds and topics and the conversations are genuine and I'm always researching something after I get done with these episodes. Cool. The don't keep your day job one is a really great place for people that have passion projects or entrepreneurial uh, endeavors, but they're still working a normal job and how they can keep motivated hmm. um, to live out their purpose. Yeah. That sounds super useful. <laughs> It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then our last. Oh, wait, one more thing. I'm Go so sorry. It. My favorite book, it. my favorite book just popped into my mind. It's the one that literally unleashed my um, recognition in myself that I am a poet and that it's okay to be a bad poet. I'm still a poet. And it's called Big Magic. And it is by the woman who actually wrote the eat pray love book and her name is elizabeth gilbert and yeah. it's just rocked my world cool yeah okay <laughs> you said you That's didn't have favorite. a favorite <laughs> that's funny great thank you um and we'll mm -hmm. post all those on the website so people can check them out and buy them cool um and then the last question is if you could look someone dead in the eye who experience similar hardships to you, what would you tell them? That they're not going crazy. I want to add a lot to that, but at the end of the day, that's the most important and comforting message is that you are not going crazy. Your mind is there to help you and support you. And there are ways to help you through it. It's not your enemy. Awesome. Thank you very much. You're welcome. All right. Thank you, everyone, for being here, for listening to episode four. Um, so grateful for your support, for your love, for listening into these stories and to really participating in your own healing process. Really, the more we do our internal work, the more it's 
going to show up in the world and we're going to see a world where we more want to live and engage and connect and be in a world that's just filled with love. So thank you for being here for doing the work. Ways you can connect to us is Instagram, Facebook at the Survivor Story. Um, check out our website. Again, we have articles, different information on these episodes and um, books that our guests recommend. So go check that out. We would love to hear from you and you can expect the next episode in two weeks. I hope you have an amazing day, an amazing week, and always remember be gentle with your heart. Mm-hmm.